Hey, we're glad that you guys are here to worship with us. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Will Pinnell. I have the honor of serving on the team here at Grace. Um, and we're excited that you're here to worship with us and dive into Scripture together this morning. Um, I believe that one of the most overlooked, underappreciated things in our world today is a mirror. How many times a day do you use a mirror? I mean, our day starts with using a mirror, right? Whether you're putting on makeup or putting in contacts or doing your hair. Guys, I see you've spent a lot of time on your hair sometimes. Don't even try to pretend like you don't. That's fine. I'm just just calling spade a spade here. We use mirrors so much every day. Backing out of the driveway to go to work, we use a rear view mirror. Going down the interstate, we use a side mirror to make sure that our blind spots are clear so that we can see to change lanes. And it dawned on me the other day, I have no idea how they make mirrors. But man, there must be some like precision involved in this. Have you seen on, on the side view mirrors how it says objects may be closer than they appear? Kind of message. Man, trying to get... I don't know, the calibration of a mirror. I I know nothing of what I'm talking about in case that's not obvious this morning, right? I don't know how they make mirrors, but to, to make things appear just big enough, but not too big, just close enough for us to see what's next to us without seeing, you know, nothing else. I have no idea how they do it, but it's amazing. When I was Growing up, the movie theater in town had one of those huge mirrors. It was about seven or eight feet tall. And as you were further away from it, you appeared like super, super, super skinny. I loved it. It was fantastic. But then the closer you got, man, it looked like this one bag of popcorn made me four blocks wide. And I was like, how am I going to get out of the door? And it just played those mental tricks on you. And it was absolutely amazing. We use mirrors so much in our everyday life, and we don't even realize it. Let me ask you, raise your hand if you've ever been here. Church Online, put your hand up in the chat if you've ever done this. How many of you have ever used the front-facing camera on your phone as a mirror? Right? Come on, don't lie. Right? Don't lie. Uh Uh-huh. We've all done that. We need mirrors so much that we pull out our phone to use a camera as a mirror. Right? It is such a crucial part of our physical world to see the things around us, to get an accurate reflection of us. And the reality is that we use mirrors in our spiritual life also. We just don't pay as much attention to them. We don't realize that we're holding up a mirror and in our spiritual life in the same way that we do every day in our physical world. <clears throat> and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning we're in Matthew chapter 15, and we've been in what we've called this third section of Matthew for a few weeks now, but we started Matthew back in August, and we've seen this, this kind of zero entry into the pool, kind of we've used that illustration to, to illustrate how Matthew introduces us to Jesus and, and faith, and, and at the beginning, here's just some general information about who Jesus is, and then the waters start to get a little deeper as he starts to, to share some of Jesus's teachings and the miracles, and the water starts to get a little bit deeper, and, and in this section, we've entitled the heart of faith. Because this, this is where Jesus really starts to get at the heart of the issue, where he really starts to talk about faith on a deeper level and in a deeper way, and especially for his disciples, especially for the crowds that have been following him for so long. This is where things start to get 
a little bit more real. And in Matthew chapter 15, what we see is the religious leaders coming to Jesus and asking him a question. And they say to Jesus, verse 2, says, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Now, my first thought as I read this was, why in the world would you not wash your hands before you eat? We're trying to teach our two-year-old how to wash his hands after using the bathroom and before eating because it's important to do. But this was not just a general hand washing. This was a a ceremonial hand washing to to look religious, to to look like you're doing the right thing. And, And they had developed this tradition over time. And It's not in Scripture. There's no command to wash your hands before you eat. But they had developed this tradition within the religious leaders over time, the priests, the Pharisees. And and this was the expectation now that those working in the temple, the priests, Pharisees, would, would do this before they ate. And in typical Jesus fashion, he sidesteps the question and the issue at hand and addresses the heart of the issue. He replies in verse 3, he answered them, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles a father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. See, one of the Ten Commandments, one of the earliest commandments that God gave his people back in Exodus was to honor your father and mother. And what that means for us today, as we look back on that, that could could mean a variety of things. God is not specific about here are the 12 things that it means to honor your father and mother. Right? We, we know that for Graham at two years old, it looks very different to honor your father and mother than for me at 32 years old to honor my father and mother. It's going to look different for me here in America than, than it does in South America or over in India or Asia or, or in other places of the world. This idea of honor looks very different. But the command, the understanding, the expectation is that we honor our father and mother throughout our lifetime. And often, some of you may be in these shoes right now, often as our parents get a little older, there's a little bit more of a financial commitment to helping them out. It takes a little bit more time to help them out here and there. And so the expectation is that we honor our father and mother. And they had developed this tradition of saying, well, I'm going to promise everything I have to God. So therefore, everything I own is no longer mine, but it belongs to God. And I can use it because I'm a priest. I'm a Pharisee. I work for God. I work in the temple. I, I can use it, but, but I can't give it to my parents. I can't give it to other people. And it was a way of, of greed coming out of the heart rather than the commands and the law of God. Now, I don't think to, to somewhat, somewhat come to the defense here of the religious leaders, I don't believe at any point they sat down and thought, how can I dishonor my father and mother? Right? This was not a conscious thought that popped into their mind and they developed the system to break the law of God. That, that was not part of it. But over time, that is in effect what happened. In fact, they were really really good at this because they used scripture to justify their actions. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2 says, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall 
not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And so they make this oath, and then they say, see, mom and dad, I'm sorry, but according to scripture, I have to honor my word, and this is, this is the commitment that I've made. And they have used scripture to justify their traditions, which is contrary to other scriptures. And again, before we're too hard on the religious leaders for doing this, we need to realize that we do the same thing. We elevate some passages to the detriment of others, and and very rarely, sometimes, we actually wrestle to see how these scriptures can merge together, how we honor both commands that maybe at times seem to be slightly, potentially contradictory to each other. Uh, Eric last week talked about Jacob's wrestling with God and how God honored that. And at the end of the day, God is big enough to take our questions, to take our doubts, to take our struggles, and he's not mad at us for wrestling through these things. So let me give you three examples this morning of how, of how we have a tendency to do this also. <clears throat> we can clearly look through Scripture and we see how God values life. Right? God, God values life. In our culture today, we put this term on it, pro-life. But what we mean when we say pro-life is really we're talking about life before it enters this, in this world, right? Life in the womb, that we are pro-life, and, and, and we should be. That's a great thing. Until we talk about end of life. And sometimes then we like to find the scriptures in the Old Testament that justify the death penalty. And we suddenly don't take that stance of pro-life anymore because of an action they had or a choice they made or, or that was their call and, and we justify it and we find scriptures to do so. And then we forget about other passages and such as the one in Deuteronomy that says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, which Paul refers back to in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, where he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And it's hard to sometimes wrestle with these two and and keep them in sync with each other and honor all of Scripture. Let me give you another one. Um, We have a clear command in Scripture to honor holiness, to pursue holiness. Scripture says, to be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. So so we are to be holy. And then we'll look at passages like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then we'll come up with good sounding phrases such as, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I'm a sinner saved by grace. You ever said that? Ever heard someone say that, right? It's pretty common. I'm a sinner saved by grace. It sounds good. But let me ask you, when do you say that? Usually when someone says there's a sin in your life that might need some attention, when we're pointing out maybe sin in, in your life or in someone else's life, and it's, it's almost said as a, well, I, I too, I'm a, I'm a sinner saved by grace. Almost as though we're justifying sin in our life. Instead of addressing it, saying, man, this sin still gets a hold of me, and I need to fight it with everything I have. And we use Scripture to justify not pursuing holiness to the degree that we should. Let me mention this one final one that's still, I 
I probably wrestle with the most, if I'm being honest. This command we talk about all the time, love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds great, sounds easy, until we actually try to put it into action. Then we come across passages like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, or adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, or nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, see, these people are not part of the kingdom of God, so we have to be against these things and against people who fall in these categories. But how can we do that if we're also called to love our neighbor as ourself? And we point to these passages about things that we should be against or, or which inevitably turns into people we should be against. And we don't continue to the next verse that says, and such were some of you, but, but, there's a, there's a big but here, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That whole list up there part of your old life, and all of them can be washed away by the power and the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so we love our neighbor, even if they may be some of these things. And so before we jump on the religious leaders, let us realize that we have the tendency and the temptation to do the exact same thing that they were doing here in Matthew chapter 15. And so Jesus clarifies what he's meaning by this. In verse 11, he said, It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of his mouth. This defiles a person. Verse 18, he clarifies, But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. It's not about what we eat, what we consume, dirt from the ground that might get on our hands, that might go on food, that might go into our body. It's what comes out of our mouth. It's what we say that reveals our heart. And the reality of it is that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the, the tradition of the elders had a heart that didn't want Jesus. They had a heart that wanted to look good in front of people, that wanted other people to respect them, to honor them, a heart that was more in it for self than it was to actually worship Jesus. I love how the very next story stands in contrast to this one. You know, often as we read scriptures throughout the Gospels, there's four Gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And often the authors have a, a different way of writing, a different reason for, for writing. And so they put stories in different orders because they're not trying to, to do a chronological account of the life and ministry of Jesus. They're trying to explain who he is. And so, so they don't put him in chronological order. And yet, in Matthew and in Mark, the only two Gospels that include both of these stories together, they happen one right after the other. And so I believe Jesus and God orchestrated these events to happen so closely together that they stand in contrast from one to the other. And in Matthew chapter 15, uh, verse 21, we see Jesus and his disciples leave this conversation with the religious leaders, and they encounter a Canaanite woman. And this Canaanite woman in verse 22 cries out to Jesus, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. 
And outside of typical Jesus fashion, he didn't answer her. Verse 23 says, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged begged him, saying, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Go tell her to go away. They said, she is bothering us with her begging. This is how persistent she is, she is being without a word from the disciples or from Jesus at all. And so Matthew 15, 24, Jesus finally answered. He, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now that might sound a bit cold, but Jesus here is just telling the facts of the case here. I was, I was just sent from Israel for Israel at this time. And we read other places in scripture where Jesus would rise up someone from Israel to be Messiah and Savior and for, for the nation of Israel. It's only after the death and resurrection of Jesus that we see Paul say this is not any longer just for Israel, but for the whole world, for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. But at this point, Jesus was just going to the lost people of Israel, the lost sheep, the house of Israel. And in verse 25, it says that she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Now this seems so far outside of of the compassionate, loving Jesus that we know. And if you read Mark's account of this story, it tones Jesus' response in this interaction. It tones Jesus down a little bit. But remember that Matthew is writing for this Jewish audience. And so what Matthew does is, is say, like, Jesus knows the customs and the traditions and how much Israel and the Canaanites didn't, didn't interact, didn't like each other. But by the end, he ends up flipping the script. He ends up displaying how much faith this woman had. When she was told no, she kept on. When she was ignored, she persisted. In fact, the New Living Translation, when it says that she came and she knelt before him, translates, translates that word as worshipped him. She acknowledges him as master. And Jesus here flips the script from what was expected of Jewish tradition and Jewish life and culture to having compassion and love on this woman. And in doing so, he allows her faith to shine through. How much she believed that even the crumbs, even just a little bit of Jesus, was more than enough for her. And here's what we end up seeing when we look at the the heart of the religious leaders and the heart of this woman who, who chased after Jesus, is that worship is a posture of the heart. Worship is a posture of the heart. The religious leaders did not have a heart that actually wanted Jesus, but this woman, she had a heart that worshipped Jesus. And at the end of the day, the religious leaders can come up with all kinds of rules and all kinds of ceremonies and all kinds of things to look the part and appear like they're doing the right things, and their heart is far from God. But this woman did all the things that she shouldn't have done that were not in culture, in line with culture, that, that, that were not okay. And she had a heart that was postured to worship 
Jesus. And there's a big difference when it comes to authentic worship versus the worship that just appears good. And we have to remember that worship is a posture of the heart. We understand this in other aspects of life. If you have ever had, as you were growing up, your parents tell you that you needed to go apologize to a sibling, and you went to them and said, sorry. Right? That's, that's not an apology from a heart. We've all been there. We've all had someone apologize to us. In the workplace, it looks a little different, right? In the workplace, if, you, if someone's forced to come apologize to you, I'm sorry you took that the wrong way. I'm sorry you were offended by what I said. I'm sorry that you didn't understand where I was coming from. It's it's not an apology, but man, when someone comes and apologizes to you, and it's from the heart, you know it. You know it. And in the same way, when we come to worship, whether it's in this place, during this time, or it is in life as we worship God, authentic worship is known to God. And inauthentic worship might appear real to us looking from the outside. But if it's not really from the heart, then it really doesn't matter. You can come into this place and raise your hands and sing the songs that we're all singing together. But if you're thinking about the championship games this afternoon, it's not worship. If you come and and spread out your hands in worship as you sing the songs, but you're thinking about the to-do list of things to do before the work week starts, it's not worship. If you come before God and you close your eyes to appear that you're, you're worshiping so genuinely, but really you're just so mad at your spouse or family or someone and you had that argument in the car that you've had so many times and you're thinking about how to respond and when to respond and what to say and all these things. It's not worship. Because our minds are somewhere else. We're distracted by the things of this world that means it's inauthentic worship. And sometimes those things happen. Sometimes life happens and we're distracted. Sometimes someone we love very dearly passes away suddenly and it is hard to worship. And that's okay. What's not okay is to set up systems and structures and fall into a habit of inauthentic worship on a regular basis. It's to do what the religious leaders did and set up traditions on their own, man-made traditions and customs that, that make them appear righteous when they're really not. And that's the difference between people who, who really want Jesus and those who only appear to want Jesus. Religious people. See, religious people want to pray before a meal. But people who want Jesus spend hours in prayer before God in secret. Uh, Religious people will walk into church and wonder why nobody dresses up fancy. Where people who want Jesus prepare their hearts for worship before even coming to corporate worship. Religious people will walk onto this stage and sing or preach and they make it all about themselves and 
people who really want Jesus come onto the stage and lead the church and worship or into God's word and have this way of still making it more about Jesus than themselves. Religious people, religious people put on a face because they want to appear good to other people. People who want Jesus want Jesus because he is good. Religious people care so much about what other people think about them and say about them, while people who really want Jesus might struggle with that too. But at the end of the day, care far more deeply about what Jesus and God think about them than other people. Andy Stanley put it this way. He said that religious people will use Scripture as mace, but disciples of Jesus use Scripture as a mirror. And we have a tendency sometimes to take this book and to justify our actions, to justify our thoughts and, and behaviors and say, see, it's in Scripture. See, see, this is, this is what it says. Rather than opening up this book and saying, here's how I need to grow and understand Jesus more today. And at the end of the day, Jesus, Scripture interpreted through Jesus, should be the only mirror that we use when it comes to our hearts and our lives. Scripture and Jesus are the only mirror that we should use. Scripture interpreted through the life and the person of Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, should be the only mirror that we hold up to see and reflect and, and, and form our hearts. And that's a really hard thing to do sometimes. Jesus comes back to this issue, and this is what doesn't come back to it. We're going to go back to it in Matthew chapter 15, verse 8, when he's with the religious people. He quotes from Isaiah, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. It's all about the heart. And for so long, they've held up other things as a mirror to their heart. They've, they've cultivated a heart because of other reasons to appear good, to appear righteous because of other people around. And they've not held up God and the Holy Word of God as a mirror to form and cultivate a heart of worship to God. The only other thing I want to say about this as, we, as, I, as I wrap this up here is that Scripture and Jesus are a mirror that we should use to our hearts to make sure that our hearts are in the right place. And sometimes we need to surround ourselves with people. People who can call us out. People that we submit to their authority or their, their accountability that can come to us and say, dude, no, 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 no. That was out of line. We need people to hold that mirror in front of us who we can say, hey, you're not being like Jesus in this moment. You need to think about the scripture. People who we know love us and know us well enough, who, who even have the ability to say it that harshly, if that's how we need to hear it. Sometimes it might need to be said a bit softer, but people who we know are in our corner and love us and support us and are encouraging us so much that they may from time to time say, hey, Will, what does this say? How did Jesus respond here? And what you did, how you responded, that's not of Jesus. You need to go and apologize. You need to go and repent of that. 
And that is a hard pill to swallow sometimes, all the time. But at the end of the day, I care far more about honoring my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, than just appearing good before people. Because I want my heart, I want my heart to be focused on Jesus. I want my heart to be fully, totally committed to Him. I want to reach this world with the good news of Jesus Christ. But throwing scriptures at people and coming up with the greatest apologetic approaches, that never changes anyone's heart. What changes people is Jesus and what he did on the cross. And so for me to point people to Jesus means that I need to cultivate a heart like Jesus. And sometimes it's hard and sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes I wrestle with God as far as what this looks like. And sometimes I get it wrong. And praise God for grace that I can try again. Praise God for compassion and forgiveness that I can try again and again and again, trying to develop a heart like Jesus. Father God, we are so grateful for you and the cross and coming down and setting an example for us to live by for giving us your word that we can hold up as a mirror to our hearts and to our lives to make sure that we are cultivating this heart to the best of our ability in the right way to reflect you and not us in a way to reflect you and not this world. And God, we praise you for the people that you have put in our lives who can hold up that mirror for us and help us in that journey. Lord, I pray that this week, we can hold up that mirror. We can find people to hold up that mirror in our life to make sure we can do the best to our ability to be having a heart like yours. Surround us with people to push us. May we feel your compassion and grace as we try to do better. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We're going to pause in this moment to take communion as a church family. If you're here and you didn't pick it up on your way in, there's tables at the back in the, in the foyer with uh, the communion elements. that We'd love for you to, to have one if you would like to uh, worship with us in this way by taking communion in this moment. Church online, well, we want to encourage you to find something around, something in the kitchen to, uh, to take communion with us also so that we can remember the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross for us. No one else in this world died for me the way Jesus did. And sometimes we like to emphasize other people or try to impress other people or a variety of ways, hold people up and put them in that place of Jesus and the reality is that they all fall short because Jesus is the only one who lived a perfect life, did it in the perfect way, died on the cross so that we could be with him forever and eternity. And so we take this moment to pause, to say thank you, to reflect and to rejoice and celebrate together and to try to put Jesus back in that proper place that he deserves to be in our life. Father God, we're so grateful for you. And we come 
asking for forgiveness, the, for, for putting other people in the place of Jesus, for elevating other people. And, and God, I pray that in this moment we can put Jesus back where he belongs as, as the center point and the focus, as the mirror that we reflect and we look to to craft our lives and our faith and, and our beliefs around. Lord, we pray that as we conform our hearts to your image, when people look at us, they'll start seeing less of us and more of you. And so I pray in this moment that we, that we take as we set it aside to remember that that we'll be completely focused on you and that this will just start our week of reflecting and looking in our hearts and taking a good look at our hearts to see who we're actually reflecting in our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.